Today we're in week two of our series called Whatever. Each weekend we're going to talk about things that relate to all of our lives, but we're going to leave you guessing each weekend about what they are. We're going to talk about whatever we want. Now today, Brian Hoffmeister is here to give our whatever message for this weekend. Brian is the founder and lead pastor of Lake Point Church in Muskego. Brian and the Lake Point team will always have a connection with our story here at River Glen. Back in 2012, we partnered with them as part of an initiative called Cannonball to help start Lake Point. We keep a picture of Lake Point on our wall in the lobby right by the cafe. This past year, Lake Point received an award. This is not a, a Christian award. They do so much for the community, serving the needs of people that they received the 2015 Muskego Business of the Year Award. Isn't that amazing? And you know what? It says a lot about what God's doing through Brian and his team at Lake Point. So please welcome Brian Hoffmeister as he gives the message today. <laughs> well, I can't tell you how great it is to be with all of you here at River Glen today. Uh, many of you have started things from scratch in life, and you know that that can be a pretty scary thing, and the bigger the thing you're trying to start from scratch, the scarier it gets. And that's how it was for me with planting a new church and you know, I'm going through all the self-doubt cycles of, did I really hear from God enough on this? Do I really have enough faith that God's going to do something amazing? Did God really pick the right person to do this church plant? And uh, in the middle of all that giant wave of self-doubt, along came our first truly significant support check towards that new church. And that check came from River Glen. And you know, as I got to look at this thing, it, it, was, it was kind of that push that you really needed to get going of saying... Someone believes Jesus is going to do something with this thing. I think I better match their faith and start believing that way as well. That, that was you guys. All of you guys. It wasn't just a thing from Ben Davis. All of you, when you gave so much as a dollar to River Glen Church because you believed the things of God that were going to take place here, well, that just spilled on over to Muskego and made a new church possible and all those great things that Ben was talking about. So on behalf of Lake Point and very much myself, thank you for being that push that we really needed. Uh, today, um, the whatever topic that I have selected to share with you is about being a couple and, and having a marriage. It's, it's my impression that a lot of us are in marriages, or at some point in life we either have or will choose to pursue a significant, meaningful, intimate relationship with a member of the opposite sex, and therefore it would be a great thing to talk about what it means to not only be a couple, but how to fight for what God has defined as the definition of a couple. Now, so to do that, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story, a couple that I think we can jump in on their story and learn a little bit from them on what this would mean in God's mind for a marriage. And uh, the story of this couple I'm going to tell you about was not a story of love at first sight. At least that wasn't her part in this story. Uh, he uh, had a quiet strength about him. This was a class A kind of guy, the one who always did the right thing, and uh, perhaps that's why she wasn't interested in him. I think she was looking for a little more of the bad guy kind of edge, someone that would stand out in, in the crowd as masculine in all the wrong ways, but at the core, she saw him as normal, but she also saw him as good. Now, she was an average, ordinary kind of girl herself. She was pretty. Uh, but at the same time, not the kind of person that would stand out in the middle of a crowd. She had a welcoming smile and a warm love inside of her heart. And had you had the opportunity to meet her, you probably just would have concluded she's nice. But that's not the way how he saw her. 
He saw her as so much more. He saw her as someone that he wanted. He wanted to care for. He wanted to love. He wanted to be with, cherish. I think was a great word for what he had in mind for his relationship with her. Now, I had the opportunity to observe these two for quite some time uh, when they were just friends. And uh, in, in their friendship, though, it was interesting to look at the way he was looking at her or talking about her, or getting defensive for her. You could tell something more was going on besides just friendship. She went on to date other people. He did not. He used to get mad, just really spitting mad at at, at the boys that she was giving her heart to. Perhaps some jealousy was involved, or perhaps he just knew how to love her the right way, and he was watching all these other guys do it the wrong way. He knew when she just needed a shoulder to cry in. No words exchanged, just keep passing the tissues for the next hour. He knew when she needed to snap out of it and smile again and play again. He knew what her favorite Starbucks order was, and so he brought that often. He knew what book she was reading and what that book was about. He knew what her definition of friendship was or what the speed of trust meant to her or what her idea of family meant to her, or what affection really felt like to her, and what you have to do to make sure she feels it, or, or what the, her definition of beauty is, and how you keep speaking that truth back into her, so whenever she's doubting her beauty, she'd, she'd feel beautiful all over again. All in all, he knew what it meant to love her the way he loved himself. Now, I think you could probably guess where this story is going, Right? I mean, it takes people a while sometimes to realize a good thing they have in front of them, but they do realize it eventually. You cry in that same shoulder long enough, and maybe you want to keep that shoulder around. Or maybe if you kept that person around and stayed with them, you'd do less crying altogether. Man, she, she had just so many insecurities built up inside of her, just, just this place of uh, just feeling restless all the time, the way she would throw her love in this direction and try to pull love from another. I wasn't really sure what she was trying to figure out, but at the end of the day, just really gave off the vibe. This is a person who just doesn't feel safe in the environment where she's giving her love until one day it seemed like it dawned on her, I am safe when I am with him. I can give love. I can receive it. And she chose to open herself up to that kind of love. And the, the story gets great from there. That they had a wedding day, just an amazing wedding day. I know sometimes when you get a wedding invitation, it sits on that kitchen counter forever because you're like, man, do I really have to go? I know I was friends with their nephew back in 1982, but now do I really have to go to this wedding? It wasn't that kind of wedding. You you wanted to go, and when you got there, it, it delivered. This was the party to be at, the venue they chose, the size of the guest list, the, the rounds of appetizers before the, the food ever came out, and he wrote his own vows to her. This was everything that you would picture from a man who courted a woman as if she was a princess. And he was sending that message. I will spare no expense for you. My life will be giving everything that I have to you and and this wedding day is my opening statement to you that this is how we will live together. They shared a honeymoon. A honeymoon that just never seemed to end. I, I was incredibly uncomfortable around these 
too. Not because their displays of affection were inappropriate. It was just in the midst of exchanging affection. It was so intense and so meaningful. You're starting to think, do I really understand what love is when you're watching those two love each other? Just the way they would look or the way that they would uh, speak to each other with respect or put their hand on each other's back as if to say, I'm with you. You're with me. Everyone else in this room can just kind of fade to the background because right now we're together. He always called her his bride. May I have a word with you, my bride? It's just always the name for her that flowed off the tip of his tongue. And you could watch as their lives got better because they were together. For her, and that constant flow of love that was just coming through her life, man, it, it was washing out those fears. It was washing out all the old junk. You just can't hold on to that stuff when, when a river of love is flowing through your life in that fashion. And she became whole. Uh, you looked at him, and even though he had so many great, going, great things going for himself, even without her, it just, man, it just felt fuller now that he had the opportunity to share this with, with her, the person he loved so much and wanted to give her heart, and finally she gave her heart to him, and the joy of his life just seemed to be complete. As time went by, though, a shift in their story did take place. And I can't make sense of any of it. Aside to say, it kind of felt like the last person into the relationship chose to be the first one out. What more she could possibly be looking for, I, I couldn't tell you. But she did go looking for it. Unexplained absences, coming home uncomfortably late, coming home not at all. And, you know, I'm thinking, if I'm, I'm, a, if I'm in his shoes right now, that'd be about the end of it, right? Because I've watched what this guy has done, and this is the class A guy, and there isn't any more that a guy could give. And that's, that's not enough for a woman that will forget her then. He was so much bigger than that. Still called her his bride, still took up the fight. And if there was a quiet strength to him before, it was, it was out front and bold at this time. You know, if this is about my job, I'll give up my job. If this is about where we're at, let's, let's just sell everything and move somewhere else and start over again because I want to be with you and you're what's most important to me. If it's about counseling, let's do that, but she wouldn't go. If it's about talking more, let, let's talk, but she wouldn't show up. He was, she was his bride, and he was going to keep up this fight. There was one night that he did chase her down and went, went right to where she was at, and I don't know what he said or what he did that night, but it must have been bold because it was enough to get her heart to snap out of it, and that night she did choose to come back home with him, and she cried on his shoulder all over again just like she used to, and he said, I love you, and meant it. It never changed for him. He was strong enough in his love to cover over a multitude of mistakes, a multitude of mistakes that were not his to apologize for. He loved her, but even still, her heart wandered. Now, it's about this point in a story that you'd call a man a coward for going back all over again, wouldn't you? You know, fool, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. 
But I didn't find anything cowardly with this man. There was nothing enabling about what he was doing. He was still going to call her his bride. He was still going to chase her with his love. But he was also going to say, here is all my love. It's right here. It's coming at you. But you also have to take a step forward to it. You can't have your love given to another and, and, and still receive all of mine. It just doesn't work that way. At some point, you have to choose to come in my direction. All my love is here. But the ball's in your court as to whether or not you want that. He turns to his father for some advice because I think we all learn to lean into the strength of, of, of another in the, in the course of a situation where we just don't know what to do. And he says, Dad, I don't know what to do. What more could I give? What would win her heart? What would bring my bride back to me? And Dad's, his father takes a quiet moment to think about it. He says, give your life for her, son. If you love her that much, you will love her enough to die for her. Die for everything she's done wrong. Die for everything that you know she could be. Die for everything that you want in terms of a relationship with her. And son, I can't tell you that she's going to turn around and choose to love you in return, but I can tell you that a love like that does, in fact, win. And so he did. He died on a cross. And he took his fight for his bride to the place of giving absolutely everything. He came back to life. And to this day, he still calls her his bride. He calls her his church. He loves her. She knows it. And now she loves him. Everything that I told you in that story is true. It's a true story. Now, I, I personified it quite a bit, but at the end of the day, if you look at the whole of scriptures and the way it speaks to it, it personifies our relationship with God just that same way. Time and time again, all throughout history, God says, of this collection of people whose hearts I am chasing, whose hearts I am trying to win over, uh, this, this is my bride. This is the one I love. This is the one I'm going after. And many times he would relate us to that of an adulterous bride, saying sometimes our hearts are anything but close to him. We're attaching our hearts to so many other places and so many other things. But nonetheless, he says, this is the one I love. This is the one I will chase. I have this picture of an intimate, connected relationship with her. And the picture I have for my church is none other than that of a groom who's chasing down a bride and wants to love her. Read it in Ephesians chapter 5 for yourself. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they, they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ. Christ. 
and the church. To give you a little context of where we landed today, this was a letter written to the church of Ephesus in the first century. Uh, the author is a church planter by the name of the Apostle Paul. And as he writes this short little book to them, uh, six chapters, as you get to the last two chapters, it's, it, it turns into a list, a list of things in life worth fighting for. He says, take up the armor of God, get ready for a battle, get ready for a spiritual battle, because the things that matter most in life, you are going to have to learn to fight for them and to protect them and be a guardian of those things. And on that list of things that we have to learn to fight for, primary one that are listed is our marriages. And it's such a beautiful picture of how he tells us to fight. He says, you know, everything that you need to know for what it would mean to fight for a marriage, you already know because it's already been done for you. Look at the great gospel that our God has given to us. Our, his son given to us, given over to death on a cross with that level of sacrifice so, so that you and I would have love just pushing and pulling on us in, 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 the, in the most powerful way known to mankind at the expense of someone's very life. That's my picture of a groom chasing his bride. Now turn to each other and do the same. I love how it goes here in Ephesians 5. Do this for your marriage. Oh, but look, Christ already has done that for you. Do this for your marriage, but oh, look again, Christ has already done this for you. Let me draw some connections for you today. Sacrifice, right? That's what Jesus did for his bride, and this is what we can do for each other in our marriages, giving ourselves up for each other. Our gospel is that God never stopped loving us, not even when we did not love him. In fact, we are told that we love him because he first loved us. It was because this love was so amazing and so consistent that that's what it took to, to pull us over and win us over and, and to keep us there in the first place. Now, would he love for us to turn and reciprocate the same kind of love? Absolutely. I mean, that would be the definition of a relationship. But at the same time, if we never chose to receive that love and, and turn to him and love him in kind, would he then choose to extend less love in our direction? Not a chance. The story of the gospel of what we've received in Jesus is that he chased us down as a bride and he kept giving and he kept sacrificing and he kept making sure we knew that his love was very much right there for us if we would choose to take it. And that's what we can then turn around and freely give to our marriages because Christ first gave it to us. We keep giving, we keep sacrificing, there's no limit to our pursuit of each other. Uh, how about being obsessive in love for each other? Uh, we were reading here that this was all to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle, blemish, holy and blameless. And th this is what love is. You know, you, you and I, we have a kind of a curious way that we apply the word love sometimes. We'll, we'll say, you know, I just love the way you look today, sweetie. Or, man, I, I, I love that you always have the right words for me at the right time. I just love having you around. And I think a lot of times the way we apply this word is saying that we love what we are getting out of this relationship in this particular moment. And that's actually great. You know, we should really celebrate all the great stuff God has given us and, and blessed us with through this person that we have married. And at the same time, when you look at how Christ has done it, rather than being fixed on what, fixated on what he was getting out of it, he was obsessed in loving her in such a way that she was the one who received. She was the one who became better. Look at the words. Washing is what was going on. Taking out the blemishes is what was going on. Removing blame. Like, really look at that word, blame. 
where all this junk and all this fear and everything that you and I seem to carry as a normal part of life, what Jesus is doing is putting this constant flow of love into our lives. So it, it can't stay there. At some point, it just has to be washed out. We have to become the beautiful creatures that he always has seen us as in the first place. What if we did that in our marriages? Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to be obsessed with your mission to whatever fear, whatever insecurity. It's just, I'm going to keep washing that out of you till you're that pure spotless bride that Christ sees you as. That's my mission in your life. Or how about fighting for oneness? Oneness, we see this in verse 28. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. For whoever loves his wife loves himself. That's the way it's supposed to be. When she grows, you grow. It's not his, it's not hers. It's, it's us all the time. And man, look at the picture of the way Jesus did this for us. He, he came down from heaven to earth to, to be one with us, meet us at our level. It's so easy, though, in the course of a marriage to carry with us an acute awareness of uh, this relationship should be doing more for me. Right? We, we have this acute awareness of what our needs are and which of those needs are not being met and therefore which needs our partner ought to be meeting for us. And I'm, I'm not saying that you don't have needs and I'm not saying your marriage should not be meeting those needs, but I'm saying that leading with that is a very different angle than the way Christ led with us. He brought a, his life down to here to relate to us at our level and then he brought us back up with him over here, his, his love just kept moving in the direction of wherever we are so that he could one day carry us to where we needed to be. He was, he was moving with us as one. How about this in verse 33? Each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and, his, and the wife must respect her husband. You know, two key words there being love and respect. And I think if we did anything today, if we just took those two words into our marriages and really worked those out, it would bring everything together, would it not? And it sums up the story of us and Jesus as, his, as our groom chasing us down as a bride. Where This story with us and God and the fact we're all hanging out here in a church right now, this would not work without the relentless pursuit of God's love for us. If he did not start the pursuit and keep up the pursuit, and even after we received him and then kind of wandered away, just something to pull us back and keep us there, if he didn't love us with that relentless fashion, I don't think this relationship would work out and we wouldn't be here. Because that's how our hearts work. We wander away. At the same time, though, the relationship wouldn't work unless we, at some point, respectfully welcomed all of that love into our life and say, Jesus, yes, I'm thankful for your gift. I thank you for the love you offered, and I am opening myself up to it. Same thing in marriage, right? One of you, at least one of you, has to look at the other and say, I will continue to pursue you with my love, even if you're wandering, even if you're wobbling. I'm going to chase you down with this love. And, and the other one definitely has to jump in with, I'm going to respectfully say yes, and I'm thankful that a gift like this is showing up. Now, there's one part of the text that I haven't read for you yet. And you're going to know why in just a moment. Uh, let me go there for you, verse 21. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which is, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, 
why did I save that one for the end? When I'm running out of time to talk about it. You know, sometimes as pastors, uh, you, you really want to just cover the parts that you really would like to talk about, but you're supposed to feel a little bit of the burden of, well, t- teach all the words in that section because God wrote them down for some reason. Why on earth did he write something like this down? I mean, nowadays, the word submit is just such a dirty word, isn't it? We don't, we don't want to submit to anyone or anything. We are our own people. We are Americans, after all. Just use this word in any context, and the red flags are going up. Back then, I don't think it was that way, but it is this way now, and then you bring the gender issues into it, and then everyone starts getting nervous, and even the theologians, when they show up at this text and really study it and try to merge with, now here's what it means to us, they come up with two very, very different interpretations and can't agree. One camp really leans into verse 21, the text saying that submit to one another. In other words, uh, the he and she are on equal playing terms. Submission is supposed to go back and forth. It's just out of this mutual submission of two equal parties that, that life and relationship is really supposed to blossom in a marriage into what it's supposed to be. The other people, on the other hand, will emphasize verse 22, where it says, wives submit to husbands. It's plain as day right there. So apparently that's what we're supposed to do. The husband is supposed to take the lead in being what Christ wants this marriage to be. And, you know, assuming he's doing a great job, the wife is supposed to jump in and submit and follow. I have my, uh, my beliefs on which of those two camps is correct. And when my wife and I live those out with each other, this actually turns into a really, really neat marriage to be a part of. And there is no chance on earth that I'm going to tell you which one of those two I believe in. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I question if it matters. Th- think about it this way. Uh, th- let's say in one particular marriage, their, their agreement is that the, the, the husband is supposed to take the lead. And the husband does take that leadership role very seriously. And so he says, it's my job, and primarily my job to sacrifice for you, sweetie, the way that the Christ has sacrificed for me. So I'm going to make it my position to keep you encouraged, to keep you inspired, to keep you supported and safe and strong and make sure all the great stuff that God has put in your life comes out to the surface and you become all of those things. That is my mission, to lead the way and doing that for you. Do you think that any woman would complain about a husband like that? How many of you are still looking for a husband like that, right? I mean, this, this wouldn't be a problem. This would actually turn out to be a great relationship. On the other hand, if, if the two of them turned to each other and said, you know, yeah, I'm so thankful that you keep treating me like Christ treated his church, but I don't think that's just your job. Uh, the gal says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to match you in that level of service and that level of love and that level of sacrifice. So we are going to keep serving and sacrificing for each other back and forth. Would that be a good picture of marriage? Heck yeah, that would be a great picture of marriage. We, we'd both end up at the same picture of what God ultimately wants the values to be between us. Or Take it a little bit further. Let's say there's a moment of indecision where uh, he thinks one thing, she thinks the other, and it gets a little complicated because we got a voting system with two ballots, and man, with this, this thing's split. What do you do? The guy in the first marriage will, will turn to his wife and say, sweetie, I understand what you're saying, and, and I value your input, but... I gotta tell you, to the best of my understanding, I really believe that we need to go in this direction. And so, can I ask you to trust me? And if he's shown the track record of making decisions not in a selfish manner, but in a manner that benefits her and benefits the family, do you think she would find it in her heart to trust him? I think she would. 
Or you go back to the other couple and they say, well, we got the split ballot here. So you know what? We submitted to my way this time. So I'm going to submit to your way this, the, 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 this next time. And then we're going to go back to my way after that. Let's just keep circulating the mutual submission. We'll keep taking turns back and forth. You know, there isn't a problem with either of these directions. And both can end up with the content of what God would like a marriage to be. The only problem you run into is when some pompous alpha male gets a hold of this text and starts banging on tables saying, look, it says it right here. Woman, you are supposed to submit to me. I am the man of this house. It is your job to listen. And all of a sudden, the Bible has become yet another tool for him to manipulate his wife down to where he wants her to be. Fellas, let me tell you this. If you ever, ever have to pull out the word submit or this text in the Bible to get your wife to listen to you, it is a surefire sign that not only have you not read this text, you have chosen not to apply it. Because if you had served her the way Christ served the church, I can guarantee you, you would feel hurt in this relationship. Can't take part of the text. You gotta play it all. Miguel's, let me talk to you as well. Because I know many of you have run into men like this and the authority card has been played and you got burned and you got hurt and you're not sure if you can trust or if you ever want to trust again. But one thing you told yourself and that you were very clear on this is if, if I ever do enter another relationship, one thing is true, I will be the one in control this time and I will be the one calling the shots. Let me just tell you this though. It's not good for you or for him or for anyone else, if the decisions you are making are coming out of a place of hurt in your life instead of a place of healing. And in fact, if you keep using your God-given ability and your God-given strength to keep cutting your man down lower and lower and lower so that you can turn, in turn feel bigger and bigger and bigger, then you are no better than the person who hurt you in the first place. You're just playing out the same story all over again. What we need to move back to is God's picture of his groom, Jesus Christ, pursuing his bride, the church. So if, if you are a man or if you are a, a woman or if you're in a marriage or thinking that someday you might be in a marriage or if you're recovering from a marriage, I, I don't know where you are, but what a shame it would be if we started hiding behind gender issues or in even worse, faith issues to make some excuse for why we don't get on with becoming the people in a marriage that God would have us be. Love, respect, sacrifice, submission. These are things that all of us can and should, one way or another, bring out in our marriage. Everything we needed to know about what it would mean to fight for a great marriage, we already received in what Jesus Christ has done for us in chasing us down as his bride, as his church. You figure out who's going to play what roles in your relationship. If he's wearing the pants or she's wearing the pants or if everyone's wearing pants, I don't actually care about any of that. What I do care about is that you be the church and that you be Christ and that you choose to fight for marriage the way that God is telling us right here in Ephesians 5 to fight for our marriages. May it be really, really hard for marriages to fail here at River Glen out of a simple acceptance for the great gospel that our God gave us. That he sent his son 
And that son, out of love for you, voluntarily went to the cross to die for you and give his, his very life to make sure that that love just pushed as far into your life as it could and pulled out of your life as, as much as it could. Out of a simple acceptance that we first received it. Let's turn around and give that to someone else. And who better to start with than the person that we've married? Let me pray. God, I, I pray that you do something inside of all of our hearts. Because this is hard. Everyone's got their own story and everyone's got their own history. And many of us are thinking right now, yeah, but you, but you don't know what my marriage is like and how long it's been that way. And I, I, it's just not going to change. I've been hurt way too bad that I, I can't open myself up to another way. God, we, we still call on you as the author of our redemption. That you can do something in us that we obviously can't do inside of ourselves. and So, so we ask for your gospel all over again. That you would be our God. That you'd place love where we can't figure out how to drop it there and you'd create forgiveness where we don't even know what that word means anymore. We look for your glory in this world. And we pray that it would show up in our marriages. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.